My name's Beth, and we're going to be reading together from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25 to 40. Now about virgins. I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honourably towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then, he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes. But he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Thanks for that reading, Beth. Um, good evening, everyone. My name's Ken. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. And uh, just adding my welcome to Graces. If you are here with us for the first time, a very special welcome to you. Whether you're joining via Facebook, YouTube, or are here in the building, it is great to have all of you here. Uh, as Grace has said, today is the last day in our series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and you'll realise that we're only halfway through. Uh, and yes, we do plan to come back and finish it hopefully next year, but given the last two years, we'll wait and see. Um, but from next Sunday, we'll be beginning to prepare for Christmas, looking at A Weary World Rejoices. Next week, the NTE, National Training Event Team, will be here. And if you don't know what that is, National Training Events are an annual get-together of Christian students from the university uh, who go away for a time of Bible teaching and training. And then at the end of it, they go around to local churches and do a mission with that church. So we've got a group of students coming here uh, next week, or end of 
yeah, from Friday. Uh, and then carols on the 19th, where you don't have to come up the front and interview anyone to take your mask off. Everyone will be allowed to be unmasked and singing. So, and then Christmas Day here, just the 9.30 service. There won't be an evening service for Christmas Day. Um, there's exciting things to look forward to. Uh, we have had God's word read for us already. And as always, we need God's enabling to both understand it and to put it into practice. So let's pray, asking God to do that in us. Awesome, God, we thank you for the opportunity uh, that you have given us to have this time together to be reading your word, to be thinking about what it means and allowing you by your spirit to work in us to bring about the change so that we would be people uh, that are not just hearers of your word, but are doers of it. Uh, we pray that you would give us insights uh, into our own thinking on this. Uh, show us places where we need to be corrected. Show us places where we need to be encouraged. Show us how we uh, can be a help to those around us uh, who potentially uh, have had issues with this uh, issues. Uh, and so we pray uh, for your, uh, yeah, just enabling as we come to this passage. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. And they all lived happily ever after. They're words that we've all heard many times. Everyone knows that you're not supposed to say it here at the start. These words signal that the story we've been listening to has come to an end. Everything has been resolved. The hard times are all over and from here on in, it's going to be smooth sailing for the happy couple. Ah, isn't that nice? Now, we also know it's only a fairy tale, but Disney and a host of movies, books and other influences are constantly drip-feeding this idea to us that we can only be fully happy if we are married to our soulmate. Can you even name a movie or a book with the storyline of a, a married couple overcoming challenges together? Well, if anything, opposing voices like the TV show Married with Children, the movie Four Weddings and a Funeral, Sayings like the old ball and chain suggest exactly the opposite, that marriage is a perpetual burden. But I think that even rarer is a book or a play in which the main character is single and happily chooses to remain that way. So the stereotype suggests instead that if you are single, you're either weird, immature, or frustrated at having not yet met the right person. So is marriage the cure-all or a mistake that you'll come to regret in time? Is singleness just a stage that we're forced to endure while we await marriage or can it be something much, much more? As we saw last week, 1 Corinthians 7 addresses a whole range of different relationships. The Corinthians had written to Paul asking, or I think more likely debating with him, what is appropriate with regards to Christians in, relation, in, in their relationships with the opposite sex. To which Paul responds that there are right and wrong responses to our being saved. This is not sex and relationship advice so that God will accept us into the family. This is drawing out the implications that result from us being saved by Jesus. Paul's writing to Christians. But this chapter is also renowned for being incredibly difficult to translate 
And there are a range of opinions from good Christian scholars as to its meaning. This is one chapter where translators have had to make multiple important decisions that lead to very, very different conclusions. So if you happen to be reading this passage in a different translation than the NIV, which we're using tonight, don't be surprised if in places it says something incredibly different. For example, the words in verse 36, his passions are too strong. Have a footnote saying that it, it might be better to translate this as she is getting along in years, which is just a little bit different, or possibly even better that they are going too far sexually. What? Is it him, her, or the couple who are being addressed? And, and what is being said to him, her, or them? We need to be cautious in the conclusions that we come to and the translation that we prefer that they are not just a confirmation of our existing beliefs or what we want to be the case. We've also got to read 1 Corinthians 7, taking into account other passages of particular significance to tonight's passage, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Speaking of Adam, prior to Eve's creation, says that it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Many conclude that God's evaluation of Adam's singleness as not good and then the provision of Eve to fix the deficiency means that God's ideal is for adults to be married. Only then can things be good. But we'll see that such a conclusion is incomplete. All this to say we need to recognise that 1 Corinthians 7 is offering limited instruction written in response to a particular question arising out of a specific situation. It is not the whole word on these issues. And yet, by focusing in on this chapter, it will help us to consider how should Christians think about singleness and marriage? How should Christians think about singleness and marriage? And I think that there are three main thoughts that come out of the passage. Firstly, you have a choice. Secondly, Marriage comes with obligations. Therefore, thirdly, keep the main thing the main thing. Paul starts his final advice about relationships in verse 25 by addressing those who have never been married. The word virgin applies to both men and women. Um, this sets virgins apart very slightly from the group mentioned back in verses 8 and 9 who I take it, are previously married men and women whose spouses have died. So he's writing to widowers and widows. He advised them back in verses 8 and 9 that they should stay single once their spouses died, but acknowledges that it is perfectly okay for them to get married again. So does the same advice apply to those who've never been married? Well, Paul firstly acknowledges that Jesus never directly addressed the topic of singleness. While the Lord, Jesus, did speak of a range of related issues such as marriage, divorce and adultery, he never explicitly said how his followers should think about singleness. So building on Paul's advice that we concluded with last week, the starting point is be satisfied in whatever circumstance you find yourself in. Verse 26 confirms that this is Paul's starting point in thinking about singleness. It is good for a man to remain as he is, which is further clarified to mean, verse 27, unmarried single men who are already engaged do not 
back out of your commitment. Christianity doesn't require or approve of you leaving your fiancé. Now, some will read this as confirmation that men have always suffered from fear of commitment. But notice that in tandem with this advice is the end of verse 27, which says that if you haven't yet made a binding lifelong commitment, don't make it your life goal to seek one out. See, Paul's instructions depend on the situation you're already in. If you've already got engaged, which probably uh, includes dating in our time, then go ahead if you want to, get married. But if you're not in a relationship, you don't need to go actively seeking one. Now, immediately in verse 28, he clarifies that the reason that they should remain as they are is not because singleness is better than marriage or because marriage is always the inferior choice. Rather, it seems that the false teachers were telling the Corinthians that getting married or even remaining married would hinder spiritual growth. You couldn't be married and be close to God. And while Paul does agree that being single is potentially a very good thing, he rejects their reasoning as wrong. What matters is not simply what you do, but why you do it. Paul insists in verse 28 that neither being married or being singled is in and of itself sinful. Neither prevents nor ensures spiritual growth. His point is not that one is better than the other or more holy than the other. Both are good. And so you're free to choose, which I really hope is liberating for some here. If you are under the impression that your singleness or somebody else's singleness means that you or they are lacking something, then hopefully this begins to correct that wrong conclusion. If Jesus, and perhaps even closer to your own situation, Paul, who was single, can be happy, satisfied and useful to God while being single, well, so can you or your friend. If we think or pray, telling God, thanks for saving me, but when are you going to come through providing the spouse that I need, the partner, so that I can have children? We're telling God what we think that we need rather than asking him to provide what he knows we need. Paul can say that he had been given absolutely everything he needs. So don't let society tell you that you are incomplete until you are married. It's simply not true. Get on with living. Whatever situation, whatever marital status, God is good and the situation he has placed you in is also good, whichever one that is. Now, I realise this may sound a bit rich coming from uh, a married man who has three kids, but this is not my opinion. This is God's revelation. I empathise if you think, what are you saying, Paul? This is crazy. But it's true. It's his truth. Green grass-itis has to be one of the deadliest diseases going around, I think far more severe than COVID-19. Whatever we have, we think that the grass is greener on the other side. For a married person, it is to look outside of their marriage for happiness. For a single person, it is to assume that you need a spouse in order to be happy. But Paul insists that marital status plays no part in determining whether a life is good or not. 
You can be married and be very unhappy. If you are single and think that marriage is the answer to all your problems, you are putting expectations onto marriage that it simply can never fulfil. Part of the problem with the Disney fairy tale is to see marriage as the end goal rather than as it is, one of two good options for doing life. Paul, who was single himself, worked with a bunch of other single men and women. Paul also worked with Priscilla and Aquila, a married couple who used their marriage to serve God. And a whole lot of people that Paul worked with, we simply don't know what their marital status was because we're not told. The most important thing is not marital status. So stop letting your situation determine your happiness. Some decisions that we make in life have more than one right choice. And in those cases, we make the decision based on other reasons. With regards to marriage or singleness, that includes what verse 26 calls the present crisis. Now, a variety of suggestions have been made as to what the crisis was. Was there intense persecution that we know from history was starting to build up at this point in time? Was it the imminent return of Jesus that Paul writes about? Was it the sexual immorality that was rampant at Corinth? Well, in reality, none of us really know. Whatever it was, it meant that at that time, Paul leant strongly towards staying single, as verse 28 explains, because marriage leads to extra troubles, which we'll look at under our point two. Marriage comes with obligations. I chose the nicer word. (laughs) Some have suggested that Paul simply wants to say that singleness is better, but he feels obligated to allow for marriage, which I think misses the point altogether. As someone who knew his Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament, better than we ever will, he was fully aware that Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 12 says that a cord of three strands is not easily broken, and it would have been applied to marriage in his culture. He knew Proverbs 18.22, which says, He who finds a wife receives a gift from God. He knew Genesis 2.18, like the back of his hand, and he grew up in a society that valued marriage much more than our society values it. As someone who was training to be a rabbi, it was expected that you got married. Not only that, he fiercely held that these truths are God's revealed truths. These were not things that were made up. And yet without denying the truth of any of them, Paul's instruction in verse 29 is, from now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Which, by the way, guys, I am very confident does not mean that the married men here can go home after work and hang out with their mates rather than picking up the kids after school or finishing that reno that you've started. This is not permission to be selfish. It is saying that some things are even more important than marriage because they have a longer lasting impact. So don't make marriage the be all and end all. And the same applies not only to marriage, but even your emotions, verse 30. It extends to your possessions, verse 30 and 31. Don't be driven by what doesn't last. 
The very things that are used by our society most often to define success in life. Happily, emotion. Married, marital status. With your own home, possessions. They're merely secondary concerns, things that shouldn't worry us. So whether you are single or married, there is something more important that at times will trump your other responsibilities. Whether you're feeling on top of the world or not, whether you are rich or poor, do not allow those things to determine your evaluation of life. This world in its present form, verse 31 says, is passing away. So don't make life all about temporary things. I think it's amazing how cutting edge Paul's instructions, written by a single Jewish man almost 2,000 years ago, are for us. Why is the great Australian dream the sole aspiration of so many 21st century Christians? Why do we persist in trying to have a bet each way, wanting the best both in this life and the next? Why haven't we learnt this lesson yet? Well, my guess is it's because we think that Paul is offering us second best. We think, like Adam and Eve did in the garden, that God is holding something back from us, that there is a better way to do life, that if we do things our way, we can get more, that life will be better. And Paul anticipates our concern. Have a look at verse 32. I would like you to be free from concern or free from worry. No worries in this life. Verse 35, I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. The words translated there as not to restrict you in verse 35 are literally not to put a noose on you. The picture is not the hangman's noose but of you being bound with a rope and pulled along like an animal or a slave down a path that you desperately don't want to go down. Paul knows that his intentions will be doubted, that, that people will think that his instructions here demand something opposing what these listeners desperately want and need. But that is not what Paul is doing. This is genuinely for our own good. To not listen, to reject what he's about to say, is to reject what will lead to the best for us. These are not harsh restrictions or impossibly lofty goals. While they do please God, they also result in our good. We assume obedience to them will cause us great pain. But the truth is disobedience will cause much more pain. In verse 32 to verse 35, Paul uses the word concern over and over. And it's very similar to our word concern. It can have both a positive and a negative meaning. I'm concerned for them or I'm worrying about it. His emphasis on concerns is to acknowledge the reality that something always drives our decisions. He points out the simple, easily observable reality that marriage comes with responsibility. So men, if you get married or already are, then being concerned for your wife is right. It's the necessary response for a Christian husband. Women, if you get married or already are married, then being concerned at what makes your husband happy is part of the role that you have taken on or are about to take on, which Paul says complicates matters. 
Unlike Disney and sometimes even what the church either explicitly or implicitly suggests, marriage does not always make things easier. Verse 32 and verse 34 say that single men and women actually have an advantage that they don't need to be worried, not, don't need to concern themselves with a spouse's concerns. They can give all of their focus directly to God. Whereas for a Christian who is married, to have that exact same focus would be sin. A married person can't ignore their spouse just to focus on God. And a parent can't neglect their children in an attempt to get closer to God. The decision to marry does come with great benefits, but that's not all that it comes with. So rather than assuming that we will marry, or even that marriage is the ultimate outcome, we actually need to be asking, will staying single or getting married better facilitate my serving of God? Which one's going to do more for the kingdom of God? Now, to be honest, I don't think that this question is asked very much when people are single and contemplating marriage. It may even be assumed that Paul is here only talking to people who are going into paid ministry. But in saying this, I think that Paul has gone the very, very long way around in answer to a question about sex to tell the Corinthians that they were actually asking the wrong question. They thought that God's ideal was to reject our, our, our sexual nature. They thought that God would be pleased with them if they avoided what comes naturally. And there are right and wrong behaviours for every life situations that Christians may find themselves in. But the determining factor, whether you are married or single, is not your marital status, but is God number one, which is our third and final point. Therefore, keep the main thing the main thing. Marriage, emotions, possessions and sex can all be good things if they are used to honour God but they can all also be very bad things if they're given the wrong priority by us. Only by giving God his rightful place can the other things fall into their rightful place. If we go back to verses 29 to 31, we see that the problem results from treating something temporary as if it was permanent. In a couple of weeks, my family and I are going camping, and I, for one, am very glad that our tent is not our permanent home. It is fun for a time, provided it doesn't rain too much, but there are not a lot of people who would choose a tent for their forever home. And yet that is exactly the problem that we do fall into. Verse 31, this world in its present form is passing away. And so marriage and sex and possessions and emotions based upon circumstances are only temporary. Yet we live like they are the ultimate, as if they are the things that matter most, that they deserve the best of our time and efforts and concern. Paul wants us to see them for what they are, good gifts given by a good God that are capable of being used for his honour. They're useful tools, but terrible masters. And so getting hung up on the gift rather than the one it has been given to us to use for, is a terrible mistake. So don't listen to Disney and make all of life about finding your Prince Charming or Princess Fiona. 
get concerned about the Lord's affairs. And while you are doing that, he may or he may not give you more possessions and or a spouse who can be a partner who has also prioritised serving God as number one. Either way, whether he does give it or whether he doesn't, it won't matter because devotion to God will genuinely be number one to you. The advice that follows in verses 36 to 38 at first reading sound very strange and the translational issue that I flagged at the start probably complicates it. It seems that Paul contradicts himself by saying that they are permitted to pull out of a planned marriage. And he then offers weird advice that uncontrollable sexual urges are a good basis to getting married. After church this morning, I was chatting with someone and we concluded that maybe what Paul needed was a wife who could have checked the first draft. (laughs) It really does seem so incredibly strange, but joking aside, we do need to remind ourselves that this is not simply a flawed man's perspective. It's not suggestions from somebody who lived in the first century. This is God's word to us. And read in its wider context, it is consistent with his bigger principle that keeping God as number one priority must determine all of our actions, all of our choices. Having stated the principle, he now shows that keeping it sometimes requires a deviation from what he first explained. The first couple he refers to in verse 36 have already given in to sexual temptation and are unnecessarily postponing their marriage. If sexual desire has already spilled over into inappropriate behaviour, the best thing they can do is get married as soon as possible. Not to fix the wrong, not to cover things up, but to prevent any further behaviour that would dishonour God, the exact opposite of the thing that they're committing to doing. Prolonging engagements adds unnecessary temptation that could be easily avoided. I think that the whole wedding industry's push for fairy tale wedding days distracts from lifelong God-honouring marriages. So much emphasis is put on one day and so little time is committed to what really matters, day two to the day of the death of one's spouse. Verses 37 to 38 then go on to refer to a second situation. If a couple have recognised that their potential marriage is not going to be a better way to serve God, then they can call it off. They've got permission. While marriage is good, if it's going to hinder serving God, then it's a better choice to agree to just be friends. Rather than contradictions or craziness, Paul is again showing that keeping God as number one trumps all. Finally, in verses 39 to 40, Paul returns to married people. And the application of the principle in this situation is, if you are already married, don't mistakenly assume that you can get rid of your problems in life by getting rid of your partner. Your partner is not the cause of your problems, or at least not the cause of all of them. So therefore, divorce is not the solution. More often than not, it just creates even more problems. On the other hand, because marriage ends with the death of one partner, and as he said in verses 8 and 9, it is honouring to God whichever choice you make post your spouse's death. 
just make sure you marry another Christian, another one who is committed to making God first. Potentially, even better than getting married, stay single so you can use your newly reacquired freedom to be even more available to serving God. What these final two pieces of advice confirm is again that the main thing is being concerned for the Lord's affairs. How that is expressed is going to be as unique as the particular situation that you find yourself in, the relationships that you have. Practically, my suggestion is don't rush to make big changes. And secondly, seek out godly advice. It is super easy for all of us to find in the complexities of all of this a way to escape from a situation that we're tired of, to, to avoid something that we know we should be doing. We read this and think we've uh, discovered a loophole. It is wise to ask others who won't just rubber stamp your decisions, but will seek together with you before God to clarify what will really be most honouring to God. Ultimately, 1 Corinthians 7 is not advice for us to tick the box so that we confirm we are doing relationships right. It is thinking through in our relationships how we can reflect the amazing reconciliation that Jesus has achieved for us by his death on the cross and allowing that to have the final say in all of our relationships. May God give us wisdom in applying it to each of our unique situations as we talk with our friends in their situations. And then God's promise is that we all will live happily ever after. Let's pray. Good God, we thank you that you know what's best for us. And though the world may scream in our ear that you need something else, something different from what you've got, we pray that we would understand the significance of what you have provided, that we would understand the importance of you, and therefore that we would live in a right way, whatever situation we find ourselves in, that we would live to honour you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.